0: Take a uh, copy of God's word, please, and we'll turn to Nehemiah, chapter 12, and we'll read through the uh, remainder of that chapter and then into the beginning of chapter 13. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. This is God's word. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the the Nataphathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hosea and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshelem, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah. And Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, son of Mattaniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachor, son of Asaph, and his relatives Shemaiah, Azarel, Millali, Gilali, Ma'ai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra, the scribe, went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up uh, straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, Above the tower of the ovens, unto the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And the priests Eliakim, Maaseah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elionai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Maaseiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehohanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Etzer. And the singers sang with Jezrehiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day, and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to to the fields of the towns, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them, Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it and to the preaching of it. Have you ever been to a dedication ceremony before? Maybe of a, of a new building or at the unveiling of a monument uh, there is going to be such a ceremony in just uh, one week's time, 2 o'clock at Bronson Park. Uh, they are unveiling a new statue of Abraham Lincoln, which is commemorating 167 years uh, since he uh, stopped off uh, in Kalamazoo on a campaign trail, uh, not for himself. This is before he ran for president, um, but for the Republican uh, Party party's candidate, John C. Fremont, and he gave a speech here in Kalamazoo about it. So you know what you do. Every 167 years when the f- former president has visited, you create a statue and unveil it in the park. Now, the dedication uh, ceremony, what's what's that about? Is that about saying, look at this amazing statue of, of Abraham Lincoln? I don't know if it's an amazing statue. We haven't seen it yet. Um, no dedication ceremony is ever actually about the thing being dedicated. It's about what that thing represents, Right. Uh, the dedication ceremony of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, at that ceremony, it was a time to celebrate and to solidify the good relations between America and France. Remember, France is the one uh, is the country that gave uh, the Statue of Liberty. Or we could think of how the dedication of the nine eleven memorial there in New York City on September eleventh, two thousand eleven. 2011, was an opportunity not to marvel at the beauty of a memorial and it is very beautiful if you've ever seen it you know this it's uh it's haunting but it's that's not the point of the dedication it was a time to mourn the loss of loved ones so there were relatives of those uh, who were lost that came and spoke there were first responders uh, who survived who came and spoke and uh, president obama spoke president uh, bush spoke it was a time to, um, as a country, come together and commemorate uh, that historic moment and um, our, our brotherhood as citizens getting through it. So this section that we've read in Nehemiah, it's about the dedication of a monument, namely the walls of Jerusalem, but it's not celebrating the walls themselves as um, uh, you know, an a, a architectural feat, It's not celebrating even the nation, celebrating her civic strength or uh, her civic power, trying to intimidate neighbors. That's not the point either. The dedication of the walls gets to what the walls really represent, and that's nothing other than God himself. God himself who promises to be with his people and to protect his people. This is a section that's all about glorifying God. And I want you to turn with me now. We're going to look at a couple psalms, I think, but I want to start by looking at Psalm 48. We sang it just a moment ago, but turn there now, and and I want you to see how the psalmist describes uh, the architecture of Jerusalem, and that gives you an idea of what's really happening in Nehemiah 12. Psalm 48, beginning in verse 12, the uh, listener of the psalm or the reader of the psalm is instructed by the author of the psalm to walk about Zion, go around her, and do a survey. Number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, the very things that have been completed that we talking about in Nehemiah twelve that you may tell the next generation Jerusalem was an awesome city, right make Jerusalem great again. no, what does it say that you can tell the generation to come this is all about God. look at the walls and don't look at and don 't see the walls, look at the walls and see God, that you can go through the citadels and tell the next generation. That this is God, our God, forever and ever. And that is the point of the dedication ceremony in Nehemiah 12. There's this big event. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance, we could say. And yet, it's not about the people. It's not about what they did. It's about what God has has done. Now that the walls are complete, the people take the time to give God glory. And so here's the theme of the passage. This is is why they're celebrating. It's because God has done the work, God should get the glory. That's the theme. God has done the work, so God gets the glory. That's the theme of Nehemiah 12, but that should be more than the theme of just this section of Nehemiah, right? Shouldn't that be the theme of our entire lives as Christians? God does the work, God gets the glory. Here is a a solid principle that we can apply to our lives. Not we can, we must. God does the work, so God must get the glory. I mean, think about what could that not apply to in your life? Consider some of these verses. You don't need to turn there, but I'm going to read you a barrage of verses that suggests that God does all the work. Therefore, he should get all the glory. Deuteronomy 8, 17 18. Beware lest you say in your heart, Israel, talking to Israel, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get your wealth. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and even those who dwell therein. That's you and me. First Chronicles 29, 14, David, at the dedication of the temple, says this. But who am I and what is my people that we should offer thus willingly for all things come from you and of your own have we given you. We're not giving you anything that you didn't have in the first place. David says. We heard John 15:5 this morning. Apart from me Jesus says, you can do nothing. Romans 11:36 For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. 1 Corinthians 4.7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast about it as though you did not receive it? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. One last one, James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. How could we not apply this? principle god does the work so he should get the glory to everything in our lives and if there is actually something in your life where you think i don't really want to associate god's name with it stop doing it if you can't give god the glory for it then you have no business being involved with it but a christian should be able to stamp everything they do and say really this came from god this was of god this was through the power of god so he gets the glory And we learn that here in Nehemiah twelve. I I suppose, you know, the point I'm trying to to make is that although this is a unique event that happened in the life of Israel, um, a a moment, a momentous triumph for God's people, and and it certainly is that, and it's even foreshadowing something even more momentous to come when God ushers in the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, and we will glorify God for that. Although that's, this is a singular event in redemptive history when you kind of strip it down to its, its most basic, uh, when we get to the core of what's taking place, well, really all they're doing is glorifying God because He accomplished something on their behalf. Does he not do that every day? Doesn't he do that every day? God deserves our glory every day, and we can learn how to glorify him from this passage. God gets the glory from Israel in three ways in this passage, and he should get the glory from us in the same ways. The first is he gets the glory in our worship. He gets the glory in our worship. God does the work. He should get the glory. How can we glorify him? Well, the first thing is by worshiping him. I think that point's the most obvious uh, from this text. You read the text, and it's a worshipful text. Um. Uh, they, the way they want to worship, let's go back to the beginning, verse 27, is they want to get um, the musicians. Call for the Levites, verse 27. They sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singing, with cymbals, harps, lyres. Um, so they're, they're going out to the Levites' respective homes and villages to come and to lead a concert of praise for the city. We learned in chapter 11, in verse 18, I believe that's right, yep, 1118, that there were 284 Levites that lived inside the walls of Jerusalem, within Jerusalem proper. 284. But then uh, we are told that in verse Uh, 20 that the rest of israel and of the priests and the levites were in all the towns of judah So there's 284 in jerusalem, but there's a lot more scattered throughout the whole country And this ceremony this concert is gonna be so big. They're not 284 is not enough We need more So they go and they bring them all from the surrounding villages to come and to lead this worship service now, once they're there, Nehemiah does something interesting. He splits them into two choirs. Um, look at verse 31. He talks about the first choir. And, and he splits them into two choirs, and they, they march about kind of like a parade of musicians in opposite directions around the city. Nehemiah goes with one parade. Ezra goes with the other parade. So verse 31 says that one went to the south, and that was the one led by Ezra, verse 36 as where the scribe went before them. And then verse 38, the other choir went to the north, and I followed them with half the people. So what you, you get this picture of them making a perimeter. Um, they're, they're kind of marching around the city. They start in the same place, and they go in opposite directions. And we'll see in a minute that they meet in the, in the temple. Um, interesting, the last time we read about somebody going around the walls and surveying the walls was in chapter 2 when Nehemiah himself did it, and that was to see how run down the walls were and what kind of work was needed. You know, what contractors do we need to bring in? What kinds of equipment do we need? What materials do we need? And it's so um, run down and the rubble is so... Um, um, uh, you know prominent that that nehemiah has he struggles to get through um and, and to walk around but now things are a lot different now they're not surveying the damage now they are rejoicing in the accomplishment of the work uh, they can pass through on a clear path but i think the fact that his steps are retraced they go they go through uh, the exact path that he walked it suggests part of the way we worship god is through reflection isn't it where we look back on where we've been and we see where God has brought us. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. Can you compare Nehemiah 2 with Nehemiah 12? They look back on where they've been so that they can rejoice in where God has brought them. That's a pattern of worship that we see in the Psalms where the Psalms are often recounting past deliverances, maybe oftentimes like the Exodus, and they recount a... Um, This is backwards to me, but I think this is past to you, right? So here's the past. Uh, They recount something in the past to get them through a present struggle with the hope of future deliverance. This is the way God acted before, so we don't need to freak out right now because we know one day he'll act that way again. So they they look back on, on how God has brought them through. We sing it in our hymns, right? Here I raise my Ebenezer hither up to this point, hither. By thy help I've come I've made it this far by your grace And then how's the hymn go on And um, I, I'm sure that by thy good pleasure I'll safely reach my home So there's that progress That that progression And that's what they're doing here uh, We need that friends We're forgetful people People, We can never, never uh, reflect on the deeds of God enough Because we are going to for, forget them And so Part of the way we glorify God is by not permitting ourselves to forget all of his kindnesses to us. So part of our worship is declaring aloud God's goodness and God's acts and God's work. Psalm 40, if you want to look there, is a great example of this. Psalm 40, kind of telling what's, what's worship supposed to be about. And verse 9. I have told, this is David, I have told the glad news of deliverance, what you have done in the great congregation. I will not, behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, Lord. I can't help but talk about what you've done. And there's no way for us to talk about what God's done unless we reflect on what he's done. And that's sort of what happens here in Nehemiah 12. They walk around the city and they're reminded, especially Nehemiah is reminded of what it used to look like, the walls used to look like. And now they behold what they've become. Uh, now let's turn to Psalm 147. Because a lot of scholars, or a number of scholars at least, suggest that Psalm 147 was composed during Nehemiah 12. If it wasn't composed, they think it probably was sung. And I think it makes sense. This, here is a, Nehemiah 12 is all about praise and joy and thanksgiving. That's what Psalm 147 is about. Look at verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. Verse 12. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. And he blesses your children. Within you. Uh, Could this be. Could this have been written. During the. Events of Nehemiah 12. Could be. It would make sense. Nehemiah 12 is a passage. That as you read it. You can hear it happening. Right. That's how. How. Joyous. The worship is. Um, Verse. 43. Back back in our text. Is. um, uh, Such a moving sentence. Or a moving Verse. Five times the author uses the word for joy. Five times. Listen to it. Verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. That's awesome. Um... It's like when we lived in our, our old house. Um, a family in, in our congregation moved back to the neighborhood, so I can ask them about this afterwards. But the um, we knew when it was homecoming. Uh, we, we knew when it was graduation, we lived near the college, because the joy of the students was heard far away. We did not join in in that joy, right? That's when you're... You're complaining to your neighbors. All oh, those kids, they're so loud, right? This isn't that kind of sound. This is a sound that piques your curiosity. What is going on? What am I missing out on? These people have something that I want. The church should have that kind of joy and that kind of sound. I grew up uh, on, at the home I grew up in is is right across the street, right across the street from the First Presbyterian Church of Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania. It's one of the most beautiful church buildings I've ever seen in my life. It takes up an entire block of this downtown um, uh, in Hollidaysburg. It's uh, beautiful brick. It's got this massive tower. Uh, the sanctuary is huge, uh, amazing, intricate pipe organ. And sadly... Uh, it, it belongs to the mainline liberal denomination, and for as long as I can remember, um, it was empty on Sundays. You know, a handful of cars. This beautiful church, I never once heard beautiful sound coming out of it. And not because there weren't people there, like, I mean, there were a few people. It's not because they weren't worshiping, it's because it was such a paltry group that there was no way to amplify the sound. You should never come late to church, but if you've ever walked in late, you know what it's like to hear people singing, right, in our building. It's beautiful, right? The, the building can't contain the sound. That's something of what the church should be uh, at a macro level, right, that our joy is heard from far away. People see it. People can, can tell the joy of God's people needs to be heard. His glory deserves our praise, our proclaimed praise, our pronounced and our amplified praise because he's done the work. He deserves the glory, He's built us up. He's united us to Christ. He's given us salvation. And so, in an exhortation to you all, when you come to church, you don't just show up. You sing out. It doesn't matter if you can carry a tune or not. It's not about you anyway. It's about him. That's what we learned in Nehemiah 12. It's not about them building the walls. It's about God. And so they glorify God because he's done the work, and they do that through their worship. There's a second thing they do. They glorify God for the work He's done by continuing to work. God gets the glory in their worship. He also gets the glory, uh, maybe we could put it like this, in, in our stewardship. Not just in our worship, but in our stewardship or in our service, uh, the way we use our gifts in the church. Um, what's interesting is that the dedication proper has ended at, at, at the, this thunderous worship service in uh, the temple. Uh, where they have met uh, together. And that's verse 40. Both the choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and so they meet in the temple. Um, That sounds like that's the conclusion of the dedication service, and yet it's not, uh, at least not in the mind of Nehemiah, not in the way he writes the story, because you get to verse 44, and it's all about these logistics, it's about administration, administration. Um, It doesn't seem to be connected with what went before it, but it does connect in Nehemiah's mind because he writes, on that day. He's intentional here to show us that while the celebration was key, that can't be the end. Uh, It didn't mean their work was done. James Boyce explains it like this. The times of rejoicing, though important, are not ends in themselves, but are meant to be additional ongoing moments in the lives of those who've given themselves to God. Rejoicing God, well, of course, we above all other people should rejoice in God. In fact, all only those who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ have any real and deep cause for rejoicing. But then he goes on to explain that that rejoicing can never be the end. It's something that spurs us on to keep working. And so... Um, one of the best ways that Nehemiah recognizes they can dedicate the wall is by putting into place structures that will ensure the wall will continue to exist and worship will continue to exist, that the city would continue the way it's supposed to. So there were a bunch of gifts that were given at their renewal ceremony in chapter 10. Now those gifts are are overseen by uh, the men appointed in verse 44. Men were appointed over storerooms, contributions, first fruits, tithes, and then to give them to, in particular, the priests and and the Levites. And why did they think this was important? Look at verse 44. Verse 44. Why did they think it was important to make sure that the the Levites and the priests got the, the tithes and the offerings? It says, last clause of that verse, For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. Talking about all this joy, there's even joy for the work of the ministers. Uh, The New Living Translation puts it like this. For all the people of Judah took joy in the priests and the Levites and their work. They loved their work. They rejoiced in the work because it's good work, and it's good work because it's God's work. And that's why giving to the priests and the Levites... Although they describe it later on, the chapters being their portion, it's really God's portion. We're giving to God's work. We're glorifying him in this. And we as the church are entrusted with that work today as well. Have you set your hands to do it? Do you serve? Do you contribute? Is, is church a theater, a theater for you, somewhere you come just to watch something take place, but you don't actually participate in any real way? Do you only get, but you don't give? One of the most significant ways you can support the work of the church and give glory to God for the work that he does in the church that we learn here is by financially supporting the ministries of the church, financially supporting your ministers and your missionaries. And we want to do it like the Israelites here. We do it as an act that flows out of worship, we do it as an act that flows out of hearts that are overjoyed for the work of missions, uh, missionaries and ministers and the ministries of a church because we see it's good work. We want to do it in thankful response to God. God gets the glory in our stewardship. Finally, finally, we'll end with this. God gets the glory in our obedience, in our worship, in our stewardship, in our obedience. We see, as you turn to chapter 13, Nehemiah includes one other aspect to this dedication service, even though it doesn't appear to go along with the dedication ceremony proper, but he uses that same phrase on that day. He did that in verse 44, on that day, on that day. And then at verse 4, we shift. So he wants us to connect all these things together and recognize this is all part of the idea of, of glorifying God for the work that he's done. And what do they do in chapter 13? They open up God's law, they read, um, they read it, they read the Torah, and they uh, learn or they're reminded uh, that um, uh, uh, God has said that for those who hate him, for those who hate his people, for those who refuse to hear his word, um, they must be separated from Israel. The Moabites are listed In particular, the Ammonites and the the Moabites, uh, as those who were not hospitable to Israel, uh, they did not honor them, and so they need to be cut off. Now that sounds really, um, that doesn't sound Christian, right? Uh, But we go back to Genesis 12. You remember the promise to in Genesis 12 to Abraham is that through you all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Uh, So this isn't like God isn't being racist here. Don't worry. He's not racist. Uh, God is the most, um, the, the most open-minded being in the world, the most inclusive being there is. Uh, and he said to Abraham, through you, yeah, I'm picking you and your people, but actually you're going to be the means by which I get to all the peoples of the world. Through you, all the nations will be blessed. Those who bless you, I will bless. But then he does say, but those who curse you, I will curse. The one who dishonors you, I will curse. And that's exactly what happened with the Moabites. And they try to trick Israel, and, and they dishonor Israel. They're not hospitable to Israel. And so here's the consequence of that. And so the people um, now, by, by taking actions in verse 3, as soon as they heard the law, they separated from Israel those of foreign descent. Uh, they're learning something really important. If they're trying to indicate through this dedication ceremony, this, this big party, that they are for God— well, it's got to be more than just that party. It's got to be also their money. So they give their stewardship to God. That's got to be their lives, too. Their lives. they got to live like they belong to God. They have to live like it. So they read God's law, and then they align their lives to be in conformity with God's law. God gets the glory in our worship, in our stewardship, and in our obedience. That, that's hard, isn't it? That's, I think that's maybe the hardest one. It's really easy to put money in an offering plate when it goes by. I mean, it's really easy to do that. And it's fairly easy, easy uh, to, to show up and come to church on a, on a Sunday and, and to be excited about church. It is not easy to kill sin. That's, that's hard. And yet, if we want to glorify God, we must do it. We can't live, live lives that are in um, conflict with God's law. We need to do it. We need to make sure our laws, our our lives align with God's law and that sin is killed. The one that's drawn out here, of course, is this idea of the company that we keep. Satan hates God. Sin hates God. So how can we, uh, you know, unbelievers hate God. How can we say we love God when we coddle up to those who hate him? How can we say we love him by being influenced by those We want nothing to do with him. Again, this is Israel simply obeying God's word, taking him at his word. They don't fight God on it like we so often do when we encounter aspects of God's law that we don't like, try to reason our way around it. They don't do that. They read the law. They say, we're not supposed to have Moabites here. We got to get them out. We got to do it. Somebody said, but my friend's a moment. Hey, God said it. They're out. But I really like their food out. They're really funny out. Right? These are the things we... Yeah, I don't keep... My friends aren't the you know the most Christian people, but they're, they're funny. I have a good time with them. Lord says to be cautious about those things. If you want to say you glorify him, then you glorify him with your obedience. Maybe you think that sounds boring. Or doesn't sound big enough for God. Right? Does it seem like a small thing to say that we can glorify God through our obedience? Right? That's not as big and as special as this big wall that they, they built. Well, let's be honest. Even the wall of Jerusalem, even the Great Wall of China falls short, far short of being a monument that's fitting enough for God's glory. That's part of the reason, just part of the reason, that Jesus Christ, um, on on the last day when he ushers in the new Jerusalem, is going to pull a Ronald Reagan and say, tear down that wall. Does anybody know what I'm talking about here? No, I don't mean the Ronald Reagan thing. I mean, do you know what I'm talking about with Jesus? in Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 2, this is the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. God says, Yahweh says, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. Because of the multitude of the people and the livestock, in it. it's going to be so big there's no room for the walls. And then people say, well, we won't be safe. Then he says this, and I will be to her a wall. The wall is not fitting enough for God's glory. It's nothing compared to God and what he deserves. That's why he says, I will be the wall. So, no, of course not. The wall is not a monument fitting enough for God's glory. But the same is not true of you and me. Wow. Let that sink in for just a second. The same is not true of you and me. Unlike the wall, which is a monument made by man for God's glory, you and I are made by God for his glory. He has said we will bear his image, that we do bear his image. And when he made us, he said, it is very good. God said we are his glory here on earth. God was pleased with with this monument. Of course, sin has marred and mucked that up. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, something amazing happens. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And that monument is restored. And when we come together as a church, we're like living stones. We reflect nothing less than the glory of God. So that through our acts of love, through our acts of mercy, our acts of kindness, our deeds of righteousness, through our holiness, our uh, piety, through our godliness, people will look at the church, the people of God, and they're going to they're going to pull what the psalmist did in Psalm 48 that we looked at. They're going to look at the church and they're going to examine the church and they're going to survey the church and they're going to say, "Wow, how great that church is." No, no, no. They're going to say, "Behold this is God. Our God forever." That's what we are privileged to do. And Peter says that as well that that the Gentiles will see our acts of righteousness and give glory to God. They they bypass the symbol and go straight to the source. We get forgotten completely. And people see him. So your obedience is no small thing. Your personal obedience is not a small way to glorify God. I mean, small or great, it's what God calls us to in Jesus Christ. It's what God has said will be glorifying to him that's what he calls us all to let us make sure we heed that call father we thank you for the fact that you have done the work you have done it all the work that you begin you see to completion and so you receive you must receive all the glory and now unto eternity and we pray that that would start now in lives that are dedicated to you in worship and in service and in stewardship, but especially in sanctification, that we would be holy as our Father in heaven is holy, so that people would see us and would give you all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.